Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. I'm preaching from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning, so you can start turning there. I would like to review a little bit from chapter 1. I'll just remind you that in that chapter, in chapter 1, Paul talked about how the Thessalonians had responded to the gospel and the effect it had on their lives and how that the shock waves of their testimony went out from this new church to the whole province and even beyond. One of the things we concluded from that chapter was just that the gospel is powerful and we still need it. And for it to be effective, uh, it needs to be more than just words in our lives. Now, in this chapter, uh, we're not going to look at the whole chapter, just the first 12 verses. And in these verses, Paul is shifting his subject a bit from how the Thessalonians behaved to how Paul and Silas and Timothy behaved in Thessalonica. And the reason, I, we think the reason he did this is because he was maybe facing some accusations, some criticism. You know, Paul was not without opposition there in Thessalonica. In fact, I mean, that's why they had to leave kind of abruptly, the, the persecution that got stirred up. And so it's easy to imagine that his detractors uh, kept saying bad things about him after they had left. And, you know, Paul doesn't say this outright in these verses that that was what was happening, but we can kind of guess it uh, that they were saying bad things about Timothy had come back from Thessalonica with a report, and maybe he was saying that, you know, the, the, there are people saying you were just a fraud, that you were in it for personal gain, that you had bad motives. And so in chapter 2, it looks like Paul is defending himself a bit here in these first 12 verses. Uh, six times he uses an expression like, you are a witness, or you yourselves know, something like that. About six times, and twice he calls God as his witness. So he claims some defense, and in doing that, he describes how they behave and gives us an excellent picture of how excellent servants ought to behave. And that's kind of the theme I want to bring out this morning. How, what does an excellent servant of Christ look like? I want to read these 12 verses now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, from the English Standard Version. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. 
For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What we're going to do is uh, I'll briefly comment on most of these verses, and then we'll talk about some of the attributes of an excellent servant. Uh, so we'll go through these verses here fairly quickly, I hope. Verse 1 says, For you yourself know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. In vain here could be talking about, uh, it's kind of a broad word, it could, could mean without resolve, lacking in resolve, or it could mean lacking in purpose. Uh, for example, if I go to the grocery store to buy popcorn and there's none there, I come home uh, without any uh, popcorn. The trip was in vain because it brought no results. But you could also say if I would go grocery shopping and I, I only did it because I was sort of bored and I came home with five bags of popcorn that we didn't even need, you know, Colleen might say, well, that was a waste of gas. You know, what was the point of that? It was perfect. It was in vain, really. And here, I think that's what Paul is trying to say here. In, in verse 2, if we go on to verse 2, he's, he's explaining why it was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So instead of saying... Um, our, our trip was not in vain because lots of you believed. He says, our coming was not in vain because we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel. And so here I think in vain means it was not, um, it was not purposeless. And that's actually how the New English translation would render it. It was not purposeless. If we'd come without declaring the gospel, it would have been. It would have been kind of a pointless trip. But God gave them boldness, and he gave them purpose. Paul always seemed to find his purpose in God. Verse 3, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we seek not to please man, but to please God, who tests our heart. So they're not driven by error or impure motives, motivated by a desire to please God who has entrusted them. And here's something I think that's kind of neat and I think significant. The word approved and the word test or examines, those have the same root word, uh, which is kind of like to prove. And so it's kind of as though Paul is saying, as we have been approved, we seek to please the one who proves us. Or he might be saying, as we um, have been examined, and, and past examination, really, we continue uh, to try to please the one who is examining us. So God has been, uh, Paul has been tested or examined by God 
and approved with this charge of the gospel. And, and Paul is very aware of that. We'll talk about that a bit more later. Uh, verses 5 and 6, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people. Now, here is an odd phrase. In the English Standard Version, I think especially, it sounds a little odd. He says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands at the promise of Christ. I mean, as he's saying, we did not seek glory or praise, in other words, we did not seek it, although we could have made demands. We could have demanded that you glorify us. Is that what he's saying? I don't think that's what Paul necessarily had in mind here. I think it's kind of hard to imagine that Paul would be saying, you know, we could have asked you to bow down and uh, praise us. That's not what Paul is saying. The, the Greek phrase here that is, um, that is could have made demands is, is talking about the ability or, or the, the power, actually, to be a burden. Uh, the New American Standard puts it this way, we might have asserted our authority. The New English Translation puts it this way, we could have imposed our weight as a prophet of Christ. So, uh, so what Paul is saying is not that we could have demanded that you uh, bring us glory or praise, but he's saying that we could have asserted our station, we could have asserted our authority, and I think he's saying it would have been okay for us to do that. It would have been okay for us to assert the fact that we are apostles. We have, we do have special authority, authority to ask for material support, for example. And 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 I think what Paul's saying: if glory, if the glory of men had been our goal, we would have done that. We would have made it obvious how important and significant our station is and impress you by uh, how important and special we are. Well, we didn't do that, Paul says. We, we didn't do that. Instead, verse 7, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And these Thessalonians, remember, they were babies in the faith. They were spiritual babies. There's a, there's a minor translation um, issue going on here. And you may notice this. Some translations will say we became like, instead of we were gentle, they might say we became like little children, which is totally different, isn't it? I mean, sort of gentle versus children. But the problem is that the, the Greek word is one letter different. So there's some manuscripts that have it as little children, some manuscripts have it as gentle, and they are, the, the words are very similar. So this is. This is what happens. And there, you know, there are some arguments in favor of, of either option. I think, I think that, you know, both arguments have a strong point, and we won't really get into that. But you know, the main point of verse 7 is whether it's children or whether it's gentle. He's saying, we were not cracking the whip over you. We were not, um, you know, we were working, we were, we were easy with you, we were gentle with you. We were not cracking an apostolic whip over your heads. Verse 8. So, being affectionately desirous of you, 
We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. The Thessalonians had become very dear to Paul. They hadn't been there that long. I mean, at the most, maybe it was several months. Might have been as short as three weeks. But they became very dear to Paul and Timothy and Silas. And it was not a sickly sweet kind of fake dearness. It was um, it was real it, because they didn't they didn't flatter them. They were going out of their way to not be a burden. They were working hard so that they could be self-supporting. They, they did the same thing at Ephesus and in Corinth. Also, they they worked to support themselves. They genuinely cared about these people. And now we get to verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was their conduct toward you believers. And I had to think, you know, it takes some, it takes some guts to use language like this, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever told somebody, I was holy, righteous, and blameless? And I don't think Paul is trying to... Uh, brag here or put himself up on a pedestal, I think he's just defending himself against some pretty dangerous accusations. I mean, they were, they were dangerous for what he was, for what God was trying to do in, in Thessalonica. And so he's using strong language to, uh, to say this is not the case. We were righteous and blameless among you. You know, and, and I just think this this ought to be our goal. As servants, our goal ought to be blameless behavior. And I'm afraid it's easy for us to um, shoot a little, to set our target a little lower than it ought to be and make our goal to be defensible or excusable behavior. It ought to be blameless. That's not the same thing. Verse, verses 11 and 12, For you know, like a father of his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And he, so he's, he's, he's laying down the challenge. We, we were exhorting and encouraging and charging these Thessalonians to walk worthy. And you'll notice it is um, his call to them to walk worthy is not a casual kind of, this, this would be a nice thing for you to do. It is, a, it is a begging and pleading and charging. The word charging there is, um, has the implication of, I'm putting you on record that you need to do this. And, and verse 11 uh, connects verses 10 and 12 and I want you to notice that in verse 10, he's describing how we were behaving. We were holy and righteous and blameless. And verse 12, he's, he's saying this, he's, he's calling them to walk worthy. And verse 11 connects the two and shows that, you know, just as we have been behaving, this is, this is what we're calling you to. Like a father with his children. Uh, Charles Ellicott put it, 
this way. We live holily, second being adverse, just as you remember, we try to induce each one of you to live. So a, a good father will be living out his teaching as he's teaching it. That's what's going on in, in verses 10 to 12. Uh, and, and so then we've got to think about walking worthy. Paul uses this expression several other times. He uses it in Ephesians 4. He, he says, I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In Philippians 1, he also does it. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians chapter 1 also. He says, um, he's praying for them that you could walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And so we get this notion of walking worthy of God, and it's kind of puzzling. How can someone possibly walk worthy of such a high calling? And then, and then you've got uh, Luke 17.10, which says this. Jesus here saying, When you have done all that you were commanded, we say we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. Jesus is saying, even if you do everything you've done, you're still unworthy servants. How do you, how do you uh, balance this with what Paul is saying about walking worthy? I think what Jesus is saying in Luke 17 is that uh, even if we are perfectly faithful, we have only done our duty, and God doesn't owe us anything. Uh, because, in fact, we're forever indebted to God. We, we're never going to even get close to the, to the place where God, uh, we deserve anything that God has given us. And I think what Paul is saying when he talks about worthy is he's talking about living in a way that is appropriate to what you've been called to. Behaving in a way that honors God and He is not ashamed of us. And clearly Paul thinks that this is of something that you can do. You can walk worthy of the Lord. Otherwise, you would just be teasing his readers by encouraging them to do something that's impossible. Um, and I just want to notice also, one last point about uh, verse 12 is calls. It says, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory? It, most of the time when it talks about, when the New Testament talks about God's calling, it's, it's the past tense. He called you. He called you. And, and that initial calling and your response. But here, here is an ongoing calling. He calls you. And later on, and toward the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul uses that expression again. He who calls you is faithful. So there is a sense in which God keeps calling us as Christians. And as Christians, obviously, we need to keep responding. Okay, let's, let's talk about... Uh, some attributes of an excellent servant, and I'm gonna, I picked out five, and they are just in order in which they occur, more or less, in this passage here. Five attributes of an excellent servant. The first one comes from verse 2, an excellent servant keeps going. Though we had already suffered and been painfully treated, Paul says. In Philippi, they had been beaten, put into stocks overnight, miraculously freed, but still, after Philippi, I would have taken a sabbatical. But Paul went on to Thessalonica, and again, they found boldness in God to preach. And then they got chased out of Thessalonica. And so they went to Berea, 
and they got to each other Bereans. So he went to Athens. And Paul kind of lived his life this way, preaching and running, and then ending up in prison, and then preaching and running. He, he was an excellent servant because he kept going. Cal Ripken was a very uh, talented baseball player, but one of the things that really stands out about him, and I don't really know much about baseball, uh, baseball facts or whatever, but so I can find it on Wikipedia. He played 2,632 baseball games. So he was he was a he was a great player, but he was also excellent. And, and what people remember about him is that he played so many consecutive games. When his son was born, somewhere in the middle of that street, fortunately for him and his wife, I guess, and their marriage. His son was born on an off day, so he didn't have to uh, break his streak just to be there. And the next day, he played and hit a home run. An excellent servant keeps going. There, there are some very talented people out there who are probably not as useful as other people who are less talented, but keep going. Okay, so that's, that's the first attribute. The second one is that an excellent servant is driven to please God and not man. This comes in verse 4. We seek not to please man, but to please God. Uh, when Paul shared the gospel, he was not, he was not interested in impressing the Thessalonians or, or getting anything from them. He wanted God to be pleased. Over in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says something, I think, pretty interesting, significant about pleasing man versus God. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And the two things that I pick up on in, in that verse that I find so interesting is, number one, that... He said, if I were still trying to please men, Paul, before he had been a servant of Christ, he apparently did care about pleasing men. He was a man-pleaser. He knows what it's like. He knew what it was like to be a man-pleaser. It's just a little encouraging to know that he went from being a man-pleaser to being a God-pleaser. And he knows that he must not go back. If, if you're trying to please men, Paul says, you really can't be a servant of Christ. Now, these 12 verses here in 1 Thessalonians make it apparent that Paul is concerned about what people think about him. But that's only in the context of he is, he is concerned that, that God's mission be accomplished here in, in Thessalonica. And if these accusations are listened to, a lot of what he has done there what God has accomplished through Paul would be undone. So that's why he's defending himself, not, not because he's a man pleaser. Uh, when someone is driven to please God instead of man, it just, I think it neutralizes so many of the other possible problems, like flattery or, or greed or impurity or deception and so on. And instead it produces holy, righteous, and blameless conduct. An excellent servant is driven 
to please God and not man. This is really the most important point. The third attribute of an excellent servant is that he is deeply affectionate toward God's people. Paul says he has become very dear to us. He was very affectionate of us. And uh, this affection led to motherly and fatherly behavior, gentle caring, encouraging, and teaching. And he seems to be saying at, at some point here in verse 8, I believe, that they were even willing to give up their lives for these Thessalonians. And they had. They had put their lives on the line for these guys. An excellent servant is deeply affectionate toward God's people. They're not like Jonah. They're and I'm going to do my part, and I'm going to sit back and watch the fireworks. A fourth attribute, this is the fourth one. The fourth one is that an excellent servant is hard-working. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day. And uh, it's interesting, in chapter 1, Paul was describing the Thessalonians as having a labor of love and a work of faith, which didn't describe all of them, by the way. There were a few that had an idleness problem. But by and large, labor of love and work of faith. And you, you can see they, they saw that in, in Paul and Silas and Timothy. They, they picked it up. They were imitating them. Paul and Silas and Timothy were hard-working. There's a lot of hard-working people out there working for themselves, and that is not really very remarkable. That's pretty common. But what is rare is people who are unselfishly laboring for God's kingdom. And finally, the fifth point of an excellent servant is that they are quick to make sacrifices. Paul says in verse 9 that we might not be a burden to any of you of course, any servant of Christ has to make some sacrifices. But an excellent servant makes sacrifices, you could say, he's not really obligated to even make. Paul and, and, and his crew, hadn't they already sacrificed enough? I mean, yeah, they had sacrificed a great deal. They had the mark from the back to prove it. Paul and Silas did. I'm not sure where Timothy was when Paul and Silas were in jail there in Philippi. Didn't they totally deserve this material support um, that the Thessalonians could have given them? Surely they deserved it. But they said, no. It would just be a burden. It would also have made it easier for people to accuse them of having bad motives. And so they gave it up. And I, they, I think they saw it quickly and, and quickly made that decision that they were not going to ask for material support. That's how excellent servants behave. They are quick to make sacrifices. I don't know, does Paul wear you out sometimes? I mean, sometimes when I read him, it, it just makes me tired. He, he was a very driven man. And... Um, and I was thinking about what, what drove him. Obviously, there was, a, there was a deep love for God. In, in this passage, there were two things that he mentioned um, that I think also were factors and, and things that Paul was aware of 
that helps them stay kind of zeroed in. One of them is the thing of God testing our hearts. Test or examine. In verse 4, we, we, we talk about we seek to please God who tests our hearts. And I think Paul is just very aware that God was still looking at his heart and still examining their hearts. And this is, this is this notion of God searching the heart is, is an idea that permeates Scripture. I have uh, some references here. I won't read them now. God is constantly looking at our hearts. You know, sometimes when I'm at work, I don't think I've done this recently, but sometimes if I'm having trouble staying focused, I'll do this little mind game. I will pretend that my boss is looking at me. Or, or looking over my shoulder or whatever. And I'll think, no, would I be a little more, how would I be working if, I, if he was watching? And that should kind of help me uh, be a little more focused. So in reality, if he actually was there looking over my shoulder, I'd be very distracted. <laughs> Probably wouldn't work. But, you know, if I think about how would I be doing this assignment if my boss was watching, how would I be using my time? It, it can be a, uh, a, help me kind of sharpen my, my focus. And I think for Paul, that was an awareness that he constantly had in mind, that God is, is watching and, and God sees what's going on in my heart. The other thing that I think Paul uh, was aware of is that God also approves sometimes. God does approve of what he sees in the hearts of those that are that are diligently serving him. And God examines and he, he does approve sometimes based on what he finds. That he um comes on that verse again, verse four. Approved by God. Approved again, as I said, that's that's very closely connected to the examination word. God examines and approves. And so even though we're nowhere nowhere near the perfection and holiness that God has, He can still be pleased with what He sees in our hearts. And of course, really the only reason we have a have a uh, have a chance at pleasing God is because of of the, the forgiveness, the blood of His Son washing away what is offensive, and also uh, the power of the Spirit to keep us growing. But He doesn't just Turn away with disgust when he sees he looks in the hearts of, of those who are who are trying sincerely to, to please him. I can know even Paul and Silas and Timothy were not perfect people. But um, God, like a good father, does not require his children to measure up to him before he can say that he's pleased with them. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse one, Paul says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And and so Paul believed that the Thessalonians were pleasing God. And he wanted them to do it more and keep growing. And hopefully that will drive us to the fact that 
yes, there is. We, we can be pleasing to God. You know, it can be very frustrating to um, to be working for someone who is never pleased with what you do. So let's remember um, the, the example that Paul lays out here of being an excellent servant. His example should encourage us. And the fact that God examines us, He is looking at us. Uh, he knows that we're trying to please Him, or we're trying to please Him. And hopefully, we are focused on pleasing Him, and hopefully, He is pleased by what He sees in our hearts. So, I hope that will challenge us to imitate the example that Paul and Silas continue to lay out here in, in chapter 2. God bless you. Let's have a song.